Thursday, April 14th, 1881. Springfield Transcript. One of the strongest arguments in favor of cremation of the dead is the universality of the hideous crime of grave robbing. Medical schools need and will have human bodies for dissection, and the quote-unquote resurrection business is far more extensive than most people suppose. Nothing can be more dreadful to contemplate than the work of ghouls who seize and sell for dissection the bodies which affectionate friends have deposited in the grave. Legislation is needed to give the dissecting table a supply of, quote, material through legitimate sources. The bodies of all unknown suicides and of all victims of the gallows should be devoted to the uses of science, and a law is needed to authorize their appropriation for that purpose. This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. I love that opening piece of music so incredibly much. So I would like to say thank you to Predrag Gosta, who is the artistic director of New Trinity Baroque, for letting us play uh, their rendition of Tomas Albanoni's Oboe Concerto in D minor. Opus number nine, number two, and that was Allegro Enon Presto. And throughout the podcast, I'll play uh, excerpts from the other two movements, I guess is what they're called. It's so hard with those titles for classical music. Um, But big thank you. I absolutely love that piece of music. And that music seems fitting to me for multiple reasons. One, it seems that that's probably the type of music that the folks Um, who were taking part in today's topic, which is medicine and surgery uh, in the 1800s, the kind of music they would be listening to. And also the composer of that music was from Italy. I think he's from Venice. 
And uh, that will tie into a story you'll hear later on on this episode about a medical Venus, which I believe were made in Italy. So today's podcast guest is Dr. Jamie Day, and he is a physics professor at Transylvania University in Lexington, Kentucky. But what we will be talking about on, the ep- on this episode, my interest is his role as the sole curator of the Musnik Museum of 19th century medical oddities and science equipment and paraphernalia, et cetera. Um, but for the, this episode, we're going to mainly be focused on the medical side of things. Um, this is an incredibly macabre episode. I mean, it's got to be the most so of any other. So if you are a fan of Edgar Allan Poe or the um, illustrated books of Edward Gorey or Victorian aesthetics or uh, Frankenstein, then I feel like you're going to love this episode because it's dark and it's historical and um, it's just very uh, gothic in nature. My two main takeaways from this podcasts are as follows. The first would be that obviously there are many reasons why people are interested in history, one of which is that it can be extremely romantic, whether it's the aesthetics or um, a simpler life or the adventure. Um, just the past always kinds to be seems to be wrapped in a bit of uh, romance, the distance from our present day. But then, of course, you can look at history to kind of make one reflect on the way they think in the present. So at, at different times throughout history, there were obviously people who thought they knew about something. So whether that was surgeons in the early 1800s, they thought they knew about the best ways to do this or that, whether it's uh, an amputation or trepanning, or if you listen to the very end of this episode, there is a really outrageous a grotesque um, uh, story about a tobacco pipe tool. You got to stick around for that one because it's it's really out there and it's hilarious. But um, you know, most people today would think that the folk medicine of the past is foolish. Um, for instance, on this episode, uh, Jamie talks about a, a medicinal hairball. Um, I don't necessarily think that. Uh, folk medicine is is foolish because I think it probably has some kind of psychological, ritualistic, real-life effect on people. But when you look at history, it can make you realize that there's no difference in present day, that it's obvious that we are doing things, our surgeons, our doctors are doing things that in 50, 100, 200 years will be looked upon with horror, with amusement, um, you know, maybe with in as with comic relief, like you'll hear with this pipe at the end of this episode. And my other main takeaway on this one was that every one of these episodes, the guests really affect me. And um, two examples of that was when I went down to Asheville in the summer. I spoke with Sonny Ledford, who is a cultural ambassador of the Eastern Band of the Cherokee. And then an episode with Jim McDowell, who's an artist and a potter working in the face jug tradition. And both of them really uh, drove home to me um, the importance of paying attention to your ancestors, connecting with your ancestors, and respecting your ancestors 
um, and especially it seems with creativity to uh, re uh, connect with your ancestors in a creative way as well. And um, there's no way I would have done this episode, which is a little bit different. It, it, you know, a lot of the episodes have to do with nature in some way, shape or form, whether it's caving or history with how people lived in, uh, with nature, things like that. Um, or ones that are about animals or fossils. This one is a little bit of a stretch, but I did this one thinking about those two gentlemen um, respecting one's ancestors because my grandfather, Albert Renard, was a um, heart surgeon in Velvier in Belgium. And my great-grandfather, um, Léon Grenad, was a surgeon in the same place in Belgium in the early 1900s. So I thought, how neat. I would love to be learning a little bit more um, about, you know, maybe some of the stuff my great-grandfather was learning about or um, science was evolving from when he was practicing. Anyways, I want to say thank you to everyone on Patreon. Um, let's see, we have someone new, Nick Maestri, Maestri. And to those at the highest tier, Jess Paget of Mossy Cup Farm, Ash Barron, Rachel Hawkshaw of Topsy Farms, On Stanley of Pyramid Metaphysical Store, Grayley Bennert, Earl Souter, Franklin Renshaw, Heron O'Brien, Jamie Nudd, my old film buddy, James Mann, Jeff, Leslie Peterson Cohen, Ryan Arnold, Rambler, Ryan Goechner, Steve Childs, Tristan Harper, Tyler Lively, and the working class woodsman and everyone at the lower tiers. Thank you so much for helping me. I hope you all have had a Merry Christmas and any other um, holiday you might be participating in. Um, and a happy new year. And I hope to get into some interesting topics in January. So for the reading in today's intro, it is going to be from the Journal of the Anthropological Institute of Great Britain and Ireland, volume 11, published in 1882. Um, how much of this information is still um, up to today's standards? I have no idea. But I always think it's fascinating to read old texts, even though the wording the wording can be kind of difficult, but uh, it's just fascinating to see how people thought. So th there are a few words I wasn't familiar with. One of them is dolmen, which is a megalithic tomb with a large flat stone laid on upright ones, foundly, found chiefly in Britain and France. So it kind of looks like a tabletop of gigantic stones. And another word is cicatrized, Cicatrized means with reference to a wound, healed by scar formation. And this anthropological work took place in, uh, in France. So they're speaking about the ancient Neolithic people of France. Also for clarity, in case you're not familiar with the word trepan or trepanning, it is to perforate a person's skull with a trepan. Um, it is to make a surgical intervention in which a hole is drilled or scraped into the human skull. During a sojourn in Paris in November 1879, I had the honor of an introduction to the late Dr. Paul Broca, 
whose loss is deplored by the whole scientific world. He very kindly took me over to the Anthropological Museum, which he had formed in connection with the School of Medicine over which he presided. And among the many interesting objects there, particularly pointed out and explained to me the curious evidences of surgical skill and the superstitions connected therewith in Neolithic times, afforded by numerous trepanned skulls in the museum, presenting me at the same time with a copy of his pamphlet on prehistoric trepanning and cranial amulets. It would appear that in 1868, Monsieur Prunier discovered in a fine dolmen which he explored near Augier a human skull, from which a large portion had been removed, apparently by means of a flint saw. This hole Monsieur Prunier looked upon as having been made in order to transform the skull into a drinking cup, according to a practice well known to have existed among semi-barbarous races. Whilst a polished portion of the whole he regarded as that part to which the lips were applied in drinking. Five other fragments of skulls, partially polished, were found in the same dolmen, and these were supposed to be fragments of other skulls prepared in like manner to serve as drinking vessels. But in examining more nearly his collection of skulls from the caves or dolmens of La Lozère, which he had explored, and all of which were assigned to Neolithic times, he found several mutilated in the same manner, although not all to the same extent. And he became convinced that the portions removed had been cut away to serve as amulets, several of which he afterwards found, some carefully rounded, polished, and bored for suspension, and others remaining rough and shapeless as when cut from the skull, whilst, singular to relate, some of these pieces were found inside the mutilated skulls, although evidently cut from other skulls. Dr. Broca, having been called upon to examine both the skulls and the amulets cut from them, discovered that the polished portion of the hole, which Monsieur Prunier had at first supposed to have been the part to which the lips were applied in drinking, represented in reality an ancient cicatrized wound healed many years before death, whilst, for some mysterious reason, most of the amulets bore traces of a portion of a similar cicatrix in some part of their circumference. Pondering upon the frequent reoccurrence of these curious facts, he came to the conclusion that it was the cicatrized wound which made both the skull and the amulets fashioned from it valuable, and set himself to discover the reason for this apparent veneration. His first conclusions were 1. That during the Neolithic period a surgical operation was practiced, which consisted of making an opening in the skull for the treatment of certain internal maladies, and that this operation was performed almost, if not quite exclusively, upon children. 2. That the skulls of those individuals who survived this operation were regarded as possessed of particular properties of a mystical order, and when such individuals died, rounds or fragments were often cut from the skull to serve as amulets. Dr. Broca believes that this dangerous and painful operation was performed for the cure of epilepsy and convulsions, and he argues justly from the superstitious practices found in connection with it that at that period, 
as well as long subsequently, these diseases were regarded as peculiarly the work of spirits, and that consequently Neolithic peoples had attained to some conception of religion and of a future state. I have before mentioned the amulets cut from the trepan skulls, some of which were found inside the skulls thus treated, although these invariably belonged to other skulls, not to that within which they were found. These amulets are of various forms and sizes. A glance at the mutilated skull figured in Dr. Broca's book will show how they have been cut away from the hole made in trepanning, and how much they must have differed in shape. Some of those found are carefully rounded and polished and have a hole bored in the center for suspension. Some are triangular, some oblong, and some quite unpolished, just in the state in which they were cut from the skull. But in almost all, there is a portion to be detected of the original cicatrized hole, and it is probably to this that they owed their value. Dr. Broca thinks that they were probably worn as a charm against those convulsive disorders for which trepanning was practiced, and that so great was their reputation that they became articles of commerce, so that it was necessary to preserve some visible token of their origin in order to prove that they were really taken from a trepan skull. This, however, will not explain their presence within the skull from which others had been cut. Dr. Broca supposes that having gone as far as possible in robbing the deceased of their cranial substance, fear of his anger in a future state induced them to make some sort of restitution by placing within the despoiled skull a valued amulet cut from another sufferer. There can be no doubt that the hole bored in the human skull had its origin in the belief in spiritual possession, formerly so universal in the case of epilepsy and other convulsive disorders. The intervention of a supernatural agent, says Dr. Broca, appeared still more evident because certain individuals displayed in their convulsive movements a strength quite beyond their ordinary strength. Nothing but a spirit imprisoned in the body could produce such effects. He is agitated and angry in his prison. If a door could be opened for him, he would escape, and the sick would be healed. This probably gave birth to the idea of prehistoric trepanning. We are in uh, Lexington, Kentucky at Transylvania University, and we're sitting in the Moosnick Museum, which is a, kind of a hodgepodge collection of artifacts that remain from our medical school, which lasted from 1799 to 1859. Amazing. And I've never been to Lexington before. I think it's pretty a pretty cool place that you have like a real town city here, and then within like four minutes... You're in, you're already, there's a lot of roads and traffic, but it is like horse country already. Right. We are certainly surrounded by horse farms. Is this where the Kentucky Derby happens? Uh, No, that's in Louisville. Okay. Okay. Um, But we have lots of uh, racing here at Keeneland and uh, Mm -hmm. the Red Mile. 
And we also have a lot of thoroughbred farms around here. Mm. So a lot of horses that run in the Derby are, are bred okay. and raised around here. Interesting. Well, it's definitely a very charming town. So I'm here because um, I looked up like weirdest museums, I think in Kentucky. And this came up as one of them. And I was like, this sounds so awesome. I told you a little bit. I have personal history with this because my mom's side of the family is Belgian. My uncle is a heart surgeon. My grand, my granddad was a heart surgeon. My great grandfather was a surgeon operating. He was born in 1881, operating in like 1900, that early times. I, t I texted my aunt about it in preparation for our conversation today. She said in that time period, my great grandfather would operate at people's houses on their kitchen table. Pretty wild. Yeah, absolutely. And, and she said that the, the major, the major um, change between my great grandfather and my grandfather was my grandfather said anesthesia. So I guess in the 30s, 20s, 30s, 40s, and like anesthesia was a major technological revolution, I guess, in, in surgery and whatnot. It, it certainly improved then. I, I believe the 1860s was the first time that anesthesia was mm. growing. Um, I could be wrong about that. We, okay. we were, uh, first of all, I'm not a medical person. Mm -hmm. I, um, I was trained in physics as in Newton's laws and mechanics and stuff like that. Um, so anything I know about medicine, I have learned on the side as I've been curating this collection. But um, it was sometime around the 1860s, 1870s that anesthesia started to take off. Mm. It was um, during the Civil War, it was not common at all. So when people um, were being operated on during the war itself, they often didn't have any anesthesia at all. Um, most people would pass out just from the pain, and then the doctors could work on them while they were uh, unconscious because of that. So in movies, you see them giving them alcohol or giving them like something to bite down on. Is that, right. is that somewhat historically? I, I don't know how accurate, mm. but it is yeah, definitely. Um, if they had, you know, the old bite the bullet yeah. phrase, yeah. if they had something for you to bite on, um, you would. I don't know how many people would use bourbon around here, but probably mm. if you had it, um, they would. Mm. Um, I know that we had a surgeon our most famous surgeon uh, in our history was famous for doing two different surgeries. One was uh, drilling holes in people's heads, uh, <laughs> so trephining. And, and you, you saw one of the skull caps upstairs from that. Um, and a lot of people would do that kind of showing off. Uh, they would, everybody who was a surgeon would have that tool in their kit, and some people would, would do it when they really shouldn't, when there wasn't a need for it. Trephanning. Um, trephanning okay, is one, okay. one term. Define trepanning before you get in what you're saying. Define it and then talk about what that tool looks like that you showed me in that case. Upstairs. Okay. Um, it's just uh, removing a portion of the skull, and it's been done for thousands of years. Um, we have unearthed skulls from around the world, many different places where it looks like people just took stone tools and slowly abraded the skull. Um, and You make a little hole. Right, exactly. And I think in medieval times, they thought you were releasing like demons or like pressure. Uh, I've heard that the thing about releasing demons, and it, as far as prehistory, we have no idea why they mm -hmm. did it, but we suspect that's why. Um, Benjamin Dudley actually did it for, for people who had uh, developed epilepsy after injuries, or at least developed some kind of seizures and shakes and so on. Mm. And he did it to relieve pressure on the brain. Mm. 
and we know that he did it at least five times and that all the patients survived. Mm. Um, and in, in his notes and in his lectures, he would tell the students at Transy not to do it except as a last resort mm. because he observed that way too many people were doing it kind of to just to show off and that they were seriously <laughs> injuring people. Um, but I do want to say that we have, I know a little bit about anatomy now, there are not a lot of nerves in the skull itself, mm. um, so it's not a terribly painful surgery compared to some that he would do. And there's also lining in, around the brain called the dura mater. Um, so it's, most of the time, it's not like you're just digging straight in and you're going to see the brain itself. Mm. Um, They're getting to that lining. They're getting near it, yeah. Oh, and the, the tool that I showed you, uh, it looks just like a circular saw that you would buy at Lowe's or Home Depot or something, but there's a little retractable point in the middle, and you would stick that into the skull, oh. and that would that would center it, and then you would turn the handle, which unlike a, a tool from Lowe's, you know, it's a very nice uh, ebony handle with uh You know what it looked like to me? And so on. It looked like a, a wine cork opener. A really fancy, yeah. <laughs> Um, to open it all, it's always head. So you can um, you can turn it until the circular hole starts, and then you can retract that point so that the point itself doesn't dig into the brain. Um, but they also did trephining with regular, I shouldn't say regular, but with straight saws and would cut out kind of a box shape or a rectangular or whatever. Oh so God. they weren't all circular. Um, and it just depended on why you were doing it. Um, I have a skull down here that I can show you later that has um, it, it's a skull of somebody who was already dead and then post-mortem mm. after the person died, somebody took a trephine, a circular one, and put some marks but didn't drill all the way through. And I think it must have been somebody just demonstrating to mm. the students how mm. you would do the procedure. In practice. Yeah. It's like when you see tattoo artists, they'll do it on like pig skin, I think. I th or I think I've seen that. They'll do it on a piece of meat. I don't know if that's yeah, true or not. But um, It would make plenty of sense. Now, what years were they still doing this trepanning? Because I thought, I thought that that was like medieval. But you're uh, talking like 1700s, well, 1800s. This, this still would doing have been this? the height of our, of our medical school was from, say, the mid-18-teens up until the 1840s. Um, and certainly they were doing it then. But they do it now. There, there are doctors who do it now. They, they have, their no tools idea. look pretty similar, only they're made out of stainless steel. And um, yeah, I, I have had doctors come through here and they see that skull and, and they say, you know, they were trained how to do that procedure. I'm stunned. So I was thinking because I looked up earlier the time period for the the old um, the old medical university. Is that the right term? They they call it the medical department of okay. Transylvania University. And um, the way I framed it was it was during the lifetime of Edgar Allan Poe because he was born early 1800s and he died like 1849 or 1850. So it was in... Yeah, it, that's a great way to so look So when at you're it. reading Edgar Allan Poe, this is what the medical world was like in his time period. Right. Also, Mary Shelley. Um, ah, that's so Frankenstein, Frankenstein. Right. That came out in uh, 1818, I believe. Okay. Um and we have uh, right over here, which your listeners can't see, but we have an electrical machine that was made in 1820. So that's exactly the style of machine that she was looking at. Hmm. When when people today think of, of Frankenstein, they think of 1930s technology because that's when the earliest films were made. And, hmm. and uh, But actually, the, the electricity at the time was frictional. You would uh, rub 
gra- glass against silk or something like that to generate electricity, and they could mm. get really big voltages. And they were at that time period getting cadavers and electrifying them and making their muscles twitch and so on. No way. And uh, and that's what Mary Shelley saw, and that's what inspired her book. Incredible. And uh. here in Lexington, not in Lexington, but here in Kentucky, um, in the 1830s, there were two doctors in Louisville who got their hands on somebody who was hung for murder and they had a powerful battery and after the after his execution um they revived him they revived him twice the first time it was just for a few seconds the second time he was actually uh able to move around um if you're hung chances are you're going to be blind because the blood vessels in your eyes will burst and also his trachea was crushed so he couldn't really breathe or speak um so this person knew he was executed <laughs> died what? and then suddenly was awake again alive again um and but couldn't communicate couldn't see and he lunged around and was alive for a few more minutes and then he died again but how can you prove that consciousness returned um like that he wasn't just like a a, a elect, electrified corpse well the electricity wasn't still on it was mm. used to kind of like uh, shock okay, treatment okay now. but look but I, you we know, don't know that he could have thought coherent thoughts for like, example like um so i've told you we i've been squirrel hunting in on in kentucky and uh so i've done a little bit of hunting and all that stuff like i've i've gotten a few snapping turtles that we ate and when you kill a snapping turtle its body moves for hours and hours and mm-hmm. hours but it's dead so it's like did that guy's consciousness return like did he return did the person return yeah. or is it just a body with things firing off. That would be impossible to say um, in a lot of ways. So actually there was a study I just read um, a couple of days ago that they have been able to get electrical signals from eyes of, of patients who have died. Um, and they can transplant corneas and so on, but they were able to see electrical signals that the cells were communicating with each other, I believe hours after death. That's not the same as having thoughts. Mm-hmm. You know, they, these were disconnected from the brain and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so death itself, we think of it as a binary thing. Mm-hmm. You're alive, you get shot, you get hung, whatever. You have a heart attack and then you die. But it's it's a long period mm-hmm. of death itself, even in, a, in normal everyday circumstances when people die. Mm-hmm. God, fascinating. Um, okay, I think something we could talk about. I mean, that's a great topic. Maybe we'll come circle back that's around That's one that. that I don't know a lot about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but. but, okay, here's something that I feel like might open up a great conversation. So one thing I'm, I think about a lot is I've been hired by and I've learned a lot um, from, like, herbalist community. And my feeling with that stuff is that humans have known how to do things for eons. And some stuff, a lot of stuff we forget from history. So it seems as though people from all over the world – those indigenous tribes of wherever knew how to do a lot and they knew which medicines were, which had medicinal effects, et cetera. But then there's all these things from history with healing that are really out there and like are absolutely horrific when you look at them today, like trepanning. So that's the example I always use. Like people used to trepan people's heads. And so it makes you wonder, well, it's just obvious when you read history to look, to reflect that it's obvious that we are doing stuff now that we that the future will oh, look absolutely. at with horror. And we don't need to get into that, but what 
are some things that were, so the, your specialty here curating the museum would have been the first half of the 1800s. What are some stuff that was going on there um, being taught as normal that is just like, what the hell? Okay, so uh, some of our earliest practitioners practiced what they called heroic medicine, and this is bleeding, um, puking and purging, mm. and blistering. The idea, the whole theory behind medicine back then is that there are bad things in the body and we need to get them out. Mm. And how do we do that? And you can, you can put something that will burn the skin and that blisters up. Um, you can make somebody pee a lot. You can make them vomit. Mm. And you can make them poop. Mm. Um, you can bleed them. You can sweat them. And they did this through a variety of methods, but some of them were just you know cutting somebody's vein and letting the blood drain out. Mm. And uh, we had doctors who also gave a whole lot of mercury to people. Um, mercury can, and in certain circumstances, help with syphilis, mm. but it doesn't help long term. And one of the things about syphilis was really common back then. And they would say a knife, uh, sorry, a night with Venus and a lifetime with Mercury because you would catch, mm. you'd have one encounter and you a might night, catch. A night with Venus, a lifetime with Mercury. Correct. Man, that really, yeah. And it would drive you crazy because uh, if you had Mercury, that would eventually, you would get heavy metal poisoning in your brain. If you didn't have it, your brain would deteriorate. Either way, you're, you're going to be very bad off. One, so um, when, when I first got here, we first started talking, we talked about the famous Mütter, however you pronounce it, the Mütter Museum in Philadelphia, which is medical oddities. Correct. And one thing that is like ingrained in my head, that's like, that it was, it was so disturbing going there. Like it was almost too much for me, but they have a skull that is eaten away by syphilis. It's a skull just covered in right. like holes. It is so horrifying to look at. So if I guess you, if you've seen The Walking Dead, they look like tertiary syphilis patients. Your your face just rots away. Your body rots oh, away. God. We don't have a skull that I know of um, with syphilis marks on it, but we have a, a cast of a brain, and it looks it's just completely deformed. Oh my god! Yeah, it is terrifying, and it's a very slow disease too. So if you get it, they call it tertiary because you get it three times and. Mm. First two times aren't as bad, but the third time it comes back, you your body just collapses, and you you die from it. Yeah, not today. People still get it today, but it's not it's not. Yeah, we like can that, cure right? it today, right? Okay, yeah. okay. I wasn't sure about how that worked. That is brutal stuff. Brutal stuff. Um, uh, another thing, uh, you're just getting back to the topic of ways that we taught here that mm -hmm. seem ridiculous now. Mm -hmm. um, if you've ever heard of phrenology, this is the idea that you can tell something about an individual's character by looking at the shape of their head. Yes, keep and, going. Yeah, I think I think long ears they would say were uh, for criminals. Uh, that all, all sorts it could of be. wild yeah. stuff. So the the very the origins of, of phrenology were based on real science. Um, at the time, they didn't have X rays. They didn't have PET scans and CAT scans and so on. So nobody ever saw a living brain. Um, and nobody could tell what was going on in a living brain very easily. But they did reach the point where they could do dissections and discovered that the brain has different organelles, different parts of it hmm. kind of were formed separately. And everybody agrees to that now. Um, but at the time, they 
they had to just speculate, well, this part of the brain must be responsible for doing this thing and so on. And there were two guys, Gall and Spursheim, who uh, were traveling around Europe and teaching this idea. And the, But since they couldn't look at a living brain, the best they could do was assume that, like our muscles, if you use our muscles, they get bigger. Hmm. Um, well, if a criminal uses their criminal aspects of their mind, that part of the brain must get bigger and it will hmm. push on the skull and push it out in a certain area. And that's why you can look outside of the skull of a, a person and tell what's going on inside. That part is completely wrong. But, so, but that's like the best they could their, do. Like reading their face. Right. You would measure their face and stuff like that. So they're, they're different versions of a, a similar thing, but the original phrenology was just looking at the structure of the skull itself. Mm. Um, and it turns out in 1819, uh, one of our professors raised a whole lot of money to take a trip to Europe and then was there, I believe, in 1820. I might be off by a year. And he met Gall in Spursheim, and he was an immediate convert. And he came back to Lexington, and he wrote the first book on phrenology here in Lexington, Kentucky. Mm -hmm. um, his name was Charles Caldwell. He was brilliant, but he was arrogant, mm -hmm. and he also didn't listen. So um, somebody, and I can't remember who right now, wrote that nobody wrote more about medicine but said less than Charles Caldwell. Mm -hmm. But he was a very prominent and important person just because of his uh, his. I don't even want to say interpersonal skills because he was pretty bad at that, mm. but he was very persuasive. Mm. And so he became a converted phrenologist and he taught phrenology to our students and it, he was a member of medical associations. And until he died, he was a proponent of phrenology. Mm. Um, and we have over here a very unusual looking phrenology skull model, um, which your readers or your listeners can't see, which is unfortunate. Um, so maybe I'll just stop going down this path. But th that was a type of, of medicine that we did teach here up until that professor left in the late 1830s. And the people who were here behind gradually realized that there was nothing hmm. sincere or nothing uh, scientific about that theory. And so hmm. they quit teaching it. Hmm. But for a while, this was a hotbed of phrenology here. Now, not not to get a little uh, on on the dark side, but didn't it, the, that stuff end up getting like super racist? With, Absolutely, they used it to just Ab kind of figure out what you know what's the best yeah. race and all that yeah. kind of stuff. That's Who, what I thought. Whoever whoever has power can decide whether right. this. Yeah, but so. it's so interesting. It's actually really fascinating that you tried to make science to make that work. You know, like that's kind of interesting. I, you, I think, you try to make like a science to like to to figure out your own biases. And yeah, we everybody does stuff. That. Yeah, everybody has opinions, and you want your opinions to be right. Right. And right so when right. you when you see an opportunity to justify your opinion, regardless of how ridiculous it is, right, you latch on to it. Right. And if you happen to be wealthy and educated and white and scientific, and you see a way to justify your behavior, mm -hmm. then of course that's what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and Charles Caldwell himself, uh, if you go back and look, he, he would be, by today's standards, considered a terrible racist. Oh, I'm sure. But yeah, yeah, yeah. there's, you know, as you read old stuff, you're going to run into that pretty frequently. They're products of their time at the same time. Right. Um, how were, so here's something that just pops in my head. When, so... I went to a really wacky, real, so I was a crazy kid, um, always getting in trouble. So I was sent to a, 
um, a really eccentric private school for three years. Really eccentric. Like they would, you know, theater, bizarre music classes. It was very weird. But they would take us on really, really intense field trips. Like we went caving for one of them. But in sixth grade, they took us to open heart surgery, which was insane. And so me as like 12 and the other kids in my, it was very small classes, like 30 kids, are in the operating viewing room, which was a room above the operating table with kind of like a glass dome. Also, there's screens all in the room where you can see close-ups and we're staring down at someone. Literally, they had something that looks like a power saw and they just power sawed through the, the plate right here, the chest mm -hmm. plate. Then they stuck little forks down into the crack they just made and then they started cranking the forks and it opened up the rib cage and all of a sudden you just see the heart and lungs just going whoosh, whoosh, and all the girls in the class are screaming. It's like horrific. But I so, bet some of the guys were screaming too. I'm sure. I'm sure. I probably was. Um, so in that time period, so what that has popped in my head is I know I've seen like old paintings and they show it in movies sometimes where they have like the really fascinating um, viewing rooms where like surgeons mm -hmm. would be kind of this really small kind of stadium structure where the students are, there's so many famous paintings of this. Right. The students looking down at the operating table. Um, how were they teaching here? Like, it, um, does that evoke anything to talk about? Um, yeah, so our medical school burned. Um, right. It, it was built, well, we, we, we taught in, in different areas, but we had kind of our, our grand medical building open in the 1840s and then it burned during the Civil War. And I have never been able to find any kind of floor plans for that. Mm. So I don't know for sure. Mm. Um, but I would be surprised if we didn't have something like that. Um, in Philadelphia, they have, and I'm sure there are others, but there's one in Philadelphia that people can visit and actually go in and sit in the operating space. And Does see it, what it is like. there a special term for those those rooms? There probably is, but okay. I don't know it. Yeah. Um, operating theater is what theater. I've heard. Theater, okay. Um, one of the things I know, uh, two things I know that Transylvania was kind of cutting edge about. Um, one, we used blackboards, which was new technology mm. at the time. Um, and also we taught by lecture, which was considered unusual at the time. Um, I don't have a lot to say about that, but I know that, mm. that I've, I've seen both of those things and they were considered mm. novel. Um, the, our very first uh, physicians here trained basically by apprenticeship. Um, but by the time we had our real medical school up and running, which uh, was in the mid-18-teens, mm. um, we were teaching by lectures and we sold tickets and people could buy tickets to a course of lectures for each professor. And then it, that allowed you to get into the room and hear what they were saying. Um, as far as surgery and anatomy goes, mm. um, that's mostly demonstration because we... I. Let me jump off in, into a different area here. Yeah, though. go. One of our weakest, um, let's see, one, one of the reasons our medical school failed or why mm. we didn't thrive mm. was because it's such a small town and we couldn't get our hands on enough cadavers to dissect. I was just going to ask you because I, I read that on your other interview. Yeah. So, so, so how, yeah, let's talk a bit about that. How, how would a normal hospital... How would a normal place in that time period source bodies? And then why couldn't you get enough here? Right. So the medical school, we were the third medical school in the country associated with a, 
a university. Mm. Um, at the time we were founded, Lexington, Kentucky is very inland. Most of the schools, not just medical schools, but colleges, were very close to the East Coast or you know, maybe a day's horseback ride inland from that. We were way far away. We just, mm. it's like in Sesame Street where they sing the song, one of these things is not like the other. We were very different at that time. Um, I think if you went to school in Philadelphia, it was a big city. There were a lot of people dying, mm. a lot of impoverished people dying, and it wasn't that hard to get your hands on a cadaver. But Lexington was a small town, and we had as many as 400 medical students at a time, and the population of the city was maybe 10,000. So it was a big fraction of the city mm. was medical students, and they all wanted to dissect, even though most of them were going to become country doctors and they didn't necessarily need that in their training. Mm. But it's they believed like the, they did. Mm. Go ahead. And it would have probably been like the most exciting part of going to the university. I would think so, yeah. So um, basically our students had two options. They they either had to rob a grave or pay somebody else to rob a grave. That was how you got them. There was no legal trade. <clears throat> Excuse me. There was no legal trade in cadavers at the time. The students would do that? Yeah. And then what? You do it in like, you bring it back to your the farm or something? Uh, you bring it back to, to the anatomical theater, yeah. And and no, just <clears throat> everyone just doesn't ask questions? Look, if yeah. you showed up to a university with a body today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what? So they just show up and no one says anything? That That's my impression. Uh, we have some letters from people um, people who were students here in the 1840s, I believe. Um, and a, a professor kind of contacted alumni and wanted them to reminisce about their days at Transylvania. And one of them talked about um, being in a, going to a small town outside of Lexington when they knew somebody had died and robbing a grave. Um, and they got shot at. They, and they knew, uh, you know, well, you know somebody's shooting at you when you hear them shoot. They, they ran from the scene, but carried the body with them. And my, in my mind, they flung it over their back and were just running out of the field. But anyway, when they got back and started the dissection, they found a post-mortem bullet wound in the cadaver, meaning that basically it served as a shield for them. I don't think they did that intentionally, but um, sometimes I, when my students gripe about the homework that I give them, I remind them, a lot of you are pre-med students, and back in the day, your homework would be to rob a grave. You know, you're getting off easy just having to do calculus and physics problems and so on. That is extraordinary. And you know what you got to think about? And I don't know much about this. So correct me if you know if I'm wrong here. That would have been pre-embalming. Embalming, I think, came yeah. around Civil War. Yeah. So you got to rob that grave when you know someone just got yeah, put Yeah, it's got to be fresh. And what does that mean? Like a few days, a few weeks? Oh, not weeks, days. Yeah. Days. Yeah. So you have to imagine the students were like cruising the the uh, obituaries if they would print them. Like how would you, you would just have to get like here, hush, yeah, hush. Word, oh, word of mouth. Old Sally one. just died over in blank holler. Oh my God. <clears throat> and um, Can you imagine if you, if you were the family and you just saw someone pull your family member out of the ground in the middle of the night? Yeah, that's why they would shoot at him. So people would hire people, you could hire somebody to watch the grave. No way. And I haven't heard of this happening in Kentucky, but throughout the world, um, they made things called MORT, M-O-R-T, mm -hmm. safes. 
And they're basically cages that you could put around a, ca a casket. Mm. You would bury it with it, and so the body couldn't be stolen. And then after a few days, you could dig it up and use it again. Um, so that's something you could anybody listening can Google mort safes and see these. Mort safe, that is so yeah. fascinating. Um, one thing about grave robbing that is an unusual fact that I've learned just in passing in, with this job, I, I always envisioned that they would dig up the whole grave and lift the casket out just like it goes in, kind of the reverse of putting one in. But that's a whole lot of work, and they really didn't do that. They would dig a much smaller hole up near the top uh, where the head would be. They would bust into the casket and then pull the, the body out um, through a smaller hole. It's so horrific. Yeah. It's so horrific. It's just a bunch of 20-year-olds doing this to yeah. go to school. Yeah. We had... Um, How'd you learn that? From old letters or something? I don't, even, I don't even remember mm -hmm. how I learned that. They, maybe they would have... It would have been documented from the way the caskets were broken. I, did, I know that one of our faculty members, um, Robert Peter, he was a chemist, but he was also dean of the medical school at times. And he wrote to hospitals around the country as, as far away as New Orleans asking if there was any way they could pickle the bodies of people who died and ship them up here. Because we knew he knew that that was a big weak spot for the school, that we needed to find a steady supply of cadavers. Um, but it didn't work. He, as far as I know, he was unable to do that. So what did they, do you know what they meant by pickling? Because I don't know exactly, okay. but just to put them in some kind something. of preservative, maybe, maybe just put them in a barrel full of salt or something like that. Oh, wow. Wow. This I think was in the 1840s when I read that late 1840s. Um, I got two things just popped in my head. Do, are you familiar with the author? one of the best living authors, Cormac McCarthy. Yeah, absolutely. One of my all-time favorite books, it's one of the darkest things I've ever written, is Child of God. Have you read that one? I haven't, no. It's an Appalachian story. And um, it's basically about this roaming pervert who um, is just going through the hills of, I must be like Tennessee or Kentucky, and doing super dark stuff. But it ends with him running from the law. And I'm going to ruin it, but... It ends with him dying, like it ends with going into caves, but at the very last page, which is so chilling, is his body. This is after you've read a whole story about this horrific person. It's like demented, like probably major learning disabilities, like really, really dark guy doing horrific things to people. And the very end is this person's body is used for science. Like exactly what we're talking about. His, it's, a, and it's a chilling ending. It's absolutely haunting. What time period was... Did the story take place? It must be like early 1900s, something like that, maybe. Um, so we were talking, but you started talking about preserving bodies and you're talking about the salting. So you took me upstairs. So the museum, you haven't gotten too into that, but um, you were, the museum is actually spread out through the university. It's not a formal museum. And you took me upstairs and you showed me some display cases. And in it was, I guess, a kid. But it was a mummified, what was that? Right. Um, so we had, you saw two. Um, these were specimens. They called them dry specimens as opposed to wet specimens. And one of the best ways to preserve before formaldehyde was invented was to mummify a body. You dry it out and then you treat it with chemicals to keep bugs from eating it. Um, arsenic was what I've been told was used a lot. And that actually arsenic was used up until the 1970s in taxidermy here in America. So um, it has a long history. 
but they would use it on human bodies. Um, they would dissect them, scrape out anything like the fat that would go rancid, um, try to get just down to the muscle and the nerves and arteries and so on. It's um, kind of horrific that I can relate to this because I've done the trapping and hunting. So I know mm-hmm. like with hides, you got to get all the fat off, you got to get all the sinew off. And then that hide can be very shelf stable with nothing other than air drying. And then you can take other little steps to make it preserved forever, like in that display case. Right. So, and so, I think salt is one of the oldest mm-hmm. ways that they would do that. So um, they would, one of the, and these specimens we have, one of the neat things, it's horrifying, but it's also neat, scientifically neat. They would squirt um, hot red wax into the arteries and then squirt blue wax into the veins so that you could see after the fact how the blood traveled from the lungs and mm. then back to the lungs again. Um, so in, and, in every cliche illustration, you know, anatomical illustration, Google images, you see the red and the blue. Right. That's kind of where that originated was how the first artistic rendering of it kind of a thing. Although that's how it actually looks, right. uh, um, I mean, but like looking the first at the outside, render, yeah. Of, yeah, looking at the outside of an artery, it doesn't look as red as as the ones that you saw there. But still, there is blood itself does get darker and bluish mm. as the oxygen is depleted from it, and gets redder as it's oxygenated. And then when you cut yourself and it comes out, and there's tons of oxygen in it. Mm. Um, it's definitely red. Um, there's I, I haven't seen this at Transy, but one of the things that they used, would sometimes do is squirt mercury into the lymph nodes. And that's actually how they were able to tr- trace the lymphatic system. So mercury is a very strange, it's a metal that's, that's liquid mm-hmm. at room temperatures. Very, they called it quicksilver. It would mm-hmm. move very easily. So they could squirt it in parts of the body and see it emerge in other parts of the body at a time when they couldn't just dissect and figure out these channels that the lymphatic system used, but they're able to trace them using mercury. And there are some of these dried specimens around. I I learned about this at the Mater Museum. Um, There's some specimens around it from this time period that have actually mercury spots on them Mm. where they did that. That's kind of fascinating. If you're trying to figure out where everything goes. So the, um, the models that you saw or the specimens that you saw after they mummified them, they would shellac them. Well, just, but describe what you show me. So one was uh, probably maybe a toddler, maybe a, a, it was not, it was beyond baby, but not much beyond baby, a very small child, very young child. And um, we didn't see all of this, but it had been trephinated. So mm. there, there are lots of holes in the, the skull. Um, the heart is still remained, remaining on that. It's very small. It's dried up and shriveled. Oh um, there are eyelashes on it. Um, I've had somebody try to get fingerprints off of it before mm. um, who was trying to develop a, an imaging technique that you could use in, um, in uh, archaeology, archaeological sites and so on and wanted to see if the technology was good enough to do that just using optical imaging to get fingerprints off of a body like that. Um, it still has a, a whole lot of the um, the tendons and so on connecting things. See, even the eyelids look like they're kind of the there. eyelids. They're yeah, dried they're, up. they're there but shrunk. It's like leather. Yeah. It's like leather. Yeah, and it look, the whole thing is very kind of like a little ET, like a little alien looking. Yeah, well, it's funky. It, it is because some of the muscles have been removed. It's been partially dissected, um, and we've got 
fetal skeletons over here. Yeah, the, well, I, you just said because you turned away fetal fetal skeletons, skeletons in they, jars and uh, bell jars. Bell yeah. jars, yeah. So not liquid. It's they're standing up. They're they're articulated. Is that the right word? Uh, these are articulated. Yes, they're articulated and standing with a little rod kind of up their back to hold them up standing, and they're in the the upside down the, the bell jar, which is like an upside down. And there's probably five of them over there. And they look they look extremely extraterrestrial. So those are different fetuses, and then it looks like that must be a baby in the back, the big one. Yeah, they're all uh, they're all as far as we know, fetuses. as far as can be tell, told, they're they were otherwise healthy though. There, there's nothing deformed about the hmm. skeletons. That's just what infants and babies look like. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I know. And, and I'm fetuses. just saying that it has an extraterrestrial it, look. It yeah. really does because mm -hmm. um, the head's so big. It, and be, yeah, it's completely unnatural. A, a fetus would never be in this position. Right. Right. It right. would always be curled up. Mm -hmm. And the three things you want going for you when you're born is your brain, your lungs, and your heart. Those are the things that are developing. And the, the appendages, the rest of the body can catch up later. Mm. And biologically speaking, we're right on the edge. Our, our brains are so big that if they got much bigger, women couldn't give birth to us. Mm. So, you know, brains are what make us uh, smart and able to do all these amazing things and also all these terrible things mm -hmm. that humans do. Um, but it, we are right on the edge. Uh, it's much harder, I understand, for a human woman to give birth than it is, for example, a horse, mm. but just because our cranium is so huge. Mm. Um, but you take something that spent its life curled up in a, the fetal position mm -hmm. inside the womb, and the womb is an incredibly strong muscle. Um, and then these people, at the time, they mounted it the same as they would mount any other skeleton, and skeletons are always mounted standing upright mm -hmm. because we're the pinnacle of creation or whatever. Mm. They did that with these fetuses. And they look just freaky. Because it does look freaky. You, you would never – there's not a – never in the history of the universe has there been a baby strong enough to stretch its arm, both arms and legs out at the same time. That's and, a really you know, interesting point, articulating why it is so bizarre looking. It's so disturbing looking. Um, I, one thing I do, I, I, and you'll, maybe you can describe them to your audience. I ask students to imagine that if they had these proportions, what would they look like? Well, an alien. <laughs> I mean, it's like a big alien head. It's like a big, huge head. The back of the skull kind of looks like it goes pretty far back, and then you've got this tiny little body. What about the rib cage? Um, I'm not versed enough with normal skeletons. It's 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 really big. Yeah, the ribs stick out maybe twice okay. as far as the chin. So. As an adult. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Very oh, yes. Different. I see what you mean. Yes, there's a. It's like a big belly of a rib cage. And that's because. It's been developing with the knees up in the chest, and you've got to have somewhere for the lungs to go. Mm. Now, what what were these? Were these like stillborns? Like what is probably this? these came the from from Paris. They were bought in, in mm. 1839, um, and we had two professors who traveled getting equipment and specimens for the museum for actually for the school at the time, um, and these were bought from an anatomist who worked right across the courtyard from the medical school in Paris, which was mm. affiliated with the hospital there. Mm. And I'm guessing any unclaimed body he could get his hands on, he would use. Mm. And childbirth was as dangerous now as super dangerous back then. A lot of women died. A lot of children died. Sometimes they both died. And so if, if you lived in a big city like Paris, a big population, lots of disease, lots of poverty, it was not hard to get your hands on 
they called them subjects, which is you know a really disrespectful term in mm-hmm. retrospect. But um, but that's where these came from. So yeah, people are all you know you hear that a lot when you talk about history, just infant mortality, and then obviously the mothers dying so often. But what really rang it drove it home recently was I was watching a documentary about Albert Durer, the famous uh, woodcut artist, illustrator, um, early 1500s. And in the documentary, they said that he was one of 19, three lived. So it's like the mom is, his mother must've just been pregnant for like two decades straight. And that would mean 16 kids died and you get three alive out of that. It's like, God, life was so brutal mm-hmm. in the past. Whew, brutal. Um, well, what else can we talk about? Here? I mean, there's a million amazing things in this place. I guess the other thing you showed me upstairs that was dried up was like a, was like a head. It was a dissected right, head. Right, And it shows the artery going up into the head. So that, I, I didn't pick that up and show you, but it's, it's actually a skull that's been sawn in half or a head that's been sawn in half. <sighs> Um, so if I had flipped it over, you can see inside the brain cavity. Oh my God. Um, you can see sinuses, which I've heard of all my life, but I've never actually seen, but there, um, there's a, a sinus right between your eyebrows. When you have a really bad cold and you lean over and you have a terrible headache, that's because you've got a bunch of infected snot filling up that, that cavity there. Mm. Um, that one actually has, the tongue is still on it. The cheek, part of the cheek is on it. It's a, it's a hideous object. Um, that was actually in an inventory from 1802 that we have in our library that, uh, it had about 40 specimens and we have five of them that survived the fire and you saw two of them that, but if you think about it, that was a full grown adult in 1802. Um, and I don't know how old, but anyway, there's a good chance that individual was born before we were a country. We were still mm. the colonies. Mm. Um, Transy was founded before the, the war actually ended um, in 1781. So uh, we were founded in 1780, and actually Daniel Boone's brother was killed in a battle north of here mm. after that time period because it took a long time for word to spread. Um, but anyway, this was still this really was the Wild West when we were founded. This mm. was part of Virginia. Um, medical treatment was non-existent here at the time. Um, I'm kind of drifting on tangents. No, here, that's okay. We, um, but you're starting to get into the fascinating. Is it a fascinating history of how the school was founded? You want to talk a little uh, more about that? I think it is. Um, yeah. Thomas Jefferson was one of our founders, one of the big proponents. Um, and in our heyday, he was writing to people saying, "Why do you want to send your kids back west? Oh, sorry, back east, mm-hmm. when you can send them to Transylvania and and." Uh, you know, at the time, the best schools in the country, and still today, most of the best schools yes. in the country are back east. But this Lexington itself was a thriving community, and we had some amazing faculty here, not just science faculty, but um, uh, just what we call liberal arts faculty today. Um, it's a shame in many ways. This Kentucky was a border state, and Lexington was a border town during the Civil War. Mm. We got occupied by both sides. Um, one of our Faculty members lived in a park right across the street, and one of his, speaking of lots of children, he had 10 children, and and Mm. very few of them survived to adulthood. Mm. He had a daughter with epilepsy who was 
basically bedridden, mm. but she would look out her window and see the war going on and, and kept a diary that's just fascinating about oh my God. Uh, just from one week to the next, Lexington would be run by you know, the, the rebels or the Union back and forth and back and forth. Um, our big uh, current administration building which was built in the 1830s. It was used as a hospital during the war. And our medical school was used as a hospital during the war. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, it burned down um, at the close of the war. And that was kind of the end of Transylvania's history as a medical school. And so everything, so like I was saying, just to be very descriptive, um, this museum that's not really a museum, it's this collection that is throughout the university that is um, by invitation only, it's not open to the public. This is all things that have been salvaged from those fires? Mostly. Now, some things, when the war was breaking out, some things were sent into private homes just to keep mm. them safe. Um, and some things we really don't know about. We, but we do have our, I've got objects that have char on them. Um, we had this wonderful device that was made to teach doctors how to deliver babies. It's um, one of the terms for it was a phantom. And it's basically a torso with an abdomen that you can see into. And there were there are different versions of this, and I don't know which version we have, but that basically the rib cage and the backbone and so on are carved out of wood, and it's, this thing is made out of leather and stuffed with straw and so on. And the doctors would have to practice getting basically a doll, but getting a doll out of this through the birth canal. Mm. And... Uh, it's seriously burned, but somebody did rescue that. And a lot of stuff we lost. We, but you were over in the library earlier. We have about 6,000 volumes from our medical hmm. li original medical library that were rescued from the fire. Um, so students and faculty alike ran into the building and carried out what they could. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thank God. Carried out everything that they could. Now, speaking of salvaging stuff, you told me upstairs and maybe this happens more than just once. They, sometimes you find stuff in weird places. Tell me what you found upstairs. Tell me again. Yeah, so that, that, that was a rare occasion. But I was in the basement of the science building, and there was a cardboard box that was full of roughly 1980s IBM keyboards from our mainframe computer that they used to have here. And there was a child's leg in it. Just <laughs> floating in, in this box of stuff. Like, the bones, the bones. Uh, yeah, the bones. Yeah, the, but they're still connected. So there's still tissue holding them together, but it doesn't have the muscles and so on. And, and it didn't have a crazy toe? Uh, yeah, because somebody has dropped it, I think. Not because oh, it wasn't okay. a deformed toe, at least okay. while the child was alive. Okay. Uh, but it was just abused. That brings to mind something else you showed me in the display cabinet, which was, you know, it's... it. In the living, it would be so horrific. Like if you saw someone on the subway in New York with this, or if you saw someone in the street with this, or if it was one of your family members, it would be like, if you were a little kid and you looked at one of your family members and they had this, you would be so unbelievably disturbed. But it's kind of beautiful in the cabinet, and I'm about to say what it is, but it reminded me of the growths on trees in the forest. Like when you go, there's a special word, I can't remember it, which is driving me nuts, when you go through the woods and you see on trees, there'll be like a big mass. A burl? Yeah. Yeah, like a wart on the yeah. tree. And you showed me, it must have been, I don't know, femur? I don't know if that's the right Oh, one. okay. I you thought you were talking about something different. Yeah. You showed me a leg bone. Right. That had, I mean, I would say it was the size of a melon. 
Yeah, certainly. A melon size bigger than a football growth on it, and that was it. What a tumor. Yeah, that's bone cancer. So it's is that mean that it, that it's become growing bone? That was a clump of bone. It it was the way I understand cancer is uh, our cells are generally regulated. They should grow for a while and then they should stop and mm -hmm. just do their job. And when you get cancer, what happens is cells that shouldn't keep growing. They should be mature adult cells, and they start acting like rebellious teenage cells, and they grow like crazy. You know how teenagers go from, mm. you know, in sixth grade, everybody's Gross four birds. feet tall, and then by the time you get to high school, everybody's six feet tall. So the, I think I said this that. literally looks like a leg bone with a piece of funky bone the size of a melon growing Yeah, that's on exactly it. what it is. And did you say something about that person's experience while they were alive? I think you did. what I've heard, I, we nobody has an interview from them, but I, I have talked with medical doctors and they have said that for cancer to get that big, it's a good sign that it at least remained benign for a long time. It might have gone malignant at the end, but um, normally if it's malignant, somebody would die long before it got that big. So that to translate it, that means that that person might have been living but they had this huge growth Correct. deformity. Right. Interesting. They didn't right. die from the cancer, at least not in, for a while. Not for a long time, yeah. There's oh. a cabinet in the hallway right behind you that has a has several bone tumors in it that are much, much smaller. Mm. And for those, you don't know. They might have mm. might have developed it and died within a year or so. Um, There's also a cabinet over there with about nine human jaws. Yeah, that's our dentistry shelf. Okay. That's so. What that was just to teach people the structure of teeth and stuff. Yeah. So when we were around, uh, dentistry wasn't a separate school that you would mm. go to. So if our doctors would learn dentistry as long, along with the other medicine that they were learning, um, and you'll notice almost none of those jaws have all their teeth. Mm. In fact, we have a set of complete teeth that's not on a jaw itself. So mm. to get a, the complete set the anatomist had to take teeth probably from many different mm. people and put them together and find them where there's you know roughly the same size and so on mm. and make a complete set okay a little bit of transition but i thought this could be this could be kind of cool a lot of times when i talk to guests and it's hi about history i like to ask them can they like paint a picture of like what the chapter that, that, that they're interested in would have been like so here's what's been popping in my head this whole time We've been talking about Lexington very much is a thriving town in the early 1800s, but it's still like kind of frontier, very rural. Like what is a normal doctor in, in around Lexington? I mean, it's still very rural. I just drove three Correct. hours. So what was it? What is an American doctor, especially more in a frontier uh, region in the early 1800s, like what is their date? Like what is their life like? Like what are they doing? What's what is a doctor mainly doing? They're they're obviously they're going. No one's showing up to a doctor's house, right? You the doctor comes to you for the most part. Um, so d people would come to Lexington okay. if they had major maladies um, to visit the university. Correct, okay. and to, to, for our doctors to treat them. Um, and I'll I'll come back to one in particular about mm. that if we have time. But I think most of the, the doctors who graduated from Transy, they moved west. They, um, there was somebody in the 1960s, so 100 years after we folded, mm -hmm. um, wrote an article 
basically illustrating how the way we taught at Transy was still influencing the way medicine was practiced in the Western United States 100 mm. years later, which is mm. pretty crazy. Um, but most of the doctors at that time would deliver babies. They would fix broken bones. Mm. They might amputate every now and then. Um, especially a lot of them were involved during the Civil War on both sides. Mm. So I, I haven't looked at it in a long time, but um, people have compiled lists of all the known alumni from a Transies Medical School and which side they fought with or, or worked. Uh, they weren't fighting, but they were patching up people who were fighting. Mm. And I believe it's hundreds of our doctors, but if not, it's, it's close to that. Um, so, and they certainly would amputate like crazy during mm. the war. Mm. Um, but so, on, and, and the major issue there is gangrene infection of a wound? Right. Okay. Yeah, they just, um, especially if you're on a battlefield somewhere, mm. it might be different if you're in a hospital in a, in a town back east or something. But um, the options were usually keep the leg and die or lose the mm. leg and maybe live. Um, but I think most of our doctors were doing fairly simple stuff. Mm. Um, another thing that we taught here, which I know this interests you because you're a botanical illustrator. Mm -hmm. uh, and a our, lot of people listening to this podcast are herbalists, homesteaders, that oh, type of cool. thing. So all of, our, all of our students would take a course in, um, it was called Materia Medica, so the materials of medicine, mm. and learn all the different plants that were that they could use as medicine and even at that even later on in our history the main things they were still trying to do were cause blistering mm. make people pee whatever throw um, up yeah and the, so the trick was to learn which plants do what and and you can never current pharmacology basically tries to separate each thing by itself so you take a pill and this pill does nothing except relieve pain. Mm. And this pill does nothing except to make you sweat or mm. reduce fever or whatever. But back then, if you're dealing with plants, plants do a lot of different things. So mm. you'd have to know, well, this plant will cause a fever, but it will also cause a rash mm. or whatever. And this one will cause somebody to, and it was a diuretic and make them pee a lot, but it might also uh, agitate their heart or something like that. Mm. So you had to know all of the effects, not then they didn't call them side effects back then. They were just effects. And you had to say, is this an effect I want or is this not an effect I want? And also you had to know how strong they were. Some of the, they used opium, mm, right? So that's the scourge of, of our modern society right now. But very powerful drugs that you could get from plants. They also used oak bark, which is mm. very weak. And they could prescribe that to lots of people for lots of things. And the trick was, Wherever you were, could you find a plant that did what you needed it mm. to do? And what kind of shape was the patient in? Was it some an old, frail individual who you really better not give them anything too strong because the medicine itself will kill them? Or is it a young huck who is, you know, generally strong mm. and healthy, but he just happened to have a get an infection that's giving him a fever or something like that? Mm. So we have now, I haven't counted them. I, probably should, but we have about 150 specimens, plant specimens mm. or herbal specimens that they use for teaching. And um, one of the things I really like about Transy, uh, some of our faculty were weird, but some mm. they were very progressive sometimes. And this Constantine Raffinesque, who you have heard of, mm -hmm. he was he was a wing nut, all right, but he was brilliant. 
And one of the things he did was he went around interviewing Native people, asking mm. them, how do you treat this? How do you treat this? And then he published it. And he put together a book about American plants that could be used in medicine. And a lot of what he put in there was things that he learned from Native Americans. Mm. This is information that most of the doctors, even at the progressive ones, weren't listening to these people oh, at I all. I believe that. So um, what, wait, when is Raffinesque? Is that 1700s? Uh, he, was, he was in the, writing this in the 1800s. He, okay. he was a professor here in the 1820s. Uh, at um, this university? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, he's, he's one of our most famous, if not the most famous mm. professor to, mm. from that time period. Um, yeah, I, I just think I, I love that. We, we have a lot of problems mm. historically. Um, this was a, a slavery hotbed, Lexington mm. itself. A whole lot of slaves were sold right down the street from us. They mm. were brought here and sold for all kinds of purposes. Um, and certainly a lot of our faculty, not all of them, but a lot of our faculty enslaved people. Um, a lot of our trustees did. A lot of our uh, the money that built the school came from mm -hmm. farms that were using slave labor and so on. So it's nice whenever we do find an example of somebody being progressive and actually hmm, hmm. listening to other people who didn't, you know, most people were ignoring the native people here who, you mentioned this earlier, they knew a lot of ways to take care of themselves. Absolutely. And we were, the Europeans came here to a new country. We didn't know what all these plants were. Of we course. still don't know what all these plants were. And he bothered to listen to them and write it down. Mm -hmm. I think that's- I wonderful. actually have an example. Um, so um, I think I've said it on the podcast before, so I'll make it a quicker one. But uh, so sassafras, do you know this? Yeah. Okay, sassafras was like the first crop. It wasn't a crop, but the first plant um, exported back to the old world. And um, it was a sensation. And it was a sensation as a cure-all. And I'm thinking this is even 1600s, 1700s. Mm -hmm. And uh, it became a huge fad, France, England is enormous. It was the the, the gentlemanly drink um, to have. And then word spread that that is how the Native Americans were curing um, syphilis. So all of a sudden, super taboo to drink it. I mean, not only because obviously they probably thought lower of the, of the Native Americans, right. but also you don't want to tell people that you got syphilis. So every single person, so all of like the, the upper classes stopped drinking the sassafras tea, which was called saloop, and it became a drink of the lower class. Huh. The prostitutes, the chimney swifts, the the um, teamsters doing the wagons, um, even some of like the sentry, I guess, like the soldier type guys. Uh, but I think that's also fascinating. Um, where were we going with that? We were going with, we were talking about Raffinesque and, okay, you were talking about some of the indigenous knowledge from the plant medicine. Um, one thing I think is really fascinating is I like learning about like folk medicine. Um, I guess it, it was, I don't know what the right question would be. Was there any folk medicine practices that, well, okay, how about this? How about this? Were there any folk medicine practices that the folk, like the, the country people would have been doing at that time period in this region? I, we're not in Appalachia anymore. I don't, what is this region? Uh, it's the edge of Appalachia. At okay. least. They, so if you're, if you grew up in Lexington, you, the federal government considers you Appalachia. Really? Yeah. Okay. So, 
at the outskirts of Appalachia in, in the early 1800s, obviously people would have been doing folk medicine, like whatever that means. Like you would have had the grant, the granny, I forgot the term, the, 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 the old granny, granny witch and stuff that would mm-hmm. come. Was there, do you know of anything, this is kind of an esoteric question, but do you know of anything that, um, these doctors here would have been fighting against like the, the folk wisdom or the folk, what they thought was superstitious, anything like that? I don't have a great answer okay. for that. I, I do know just, just broadly speaking, this was a time when men were taking over what had tr- traditionally been women's oh. role in delivering babies forever and ever and ever. I was going to say that um, earlier. But it, that's another area just, just to fit in something progressive about another transy professor, Benjamin Dudley, who I mentioned earlier for mm. treffening, he, I, I've seen his notes. Mm. He, like a preacher almost, mm. insisted that when when you're overseeing a childbirth, you let nature take its course mm. and that you should not use instruments. They, they made instruments, and we have some in our special collections library, for doing all kinds of things to twist babies and turn them and so on. I don't think you um, can see it. Oh, yeah. I almost bumped a, I raised my hand. I almost bumped a, a, a oddity in here. Um, I don't think you can see it, but on the side of my eye, there's a little dimple. It's because I, I was pulled out with forceps. So I'm sure they were trying, all yeah. these doctors were trying to do stuff like that. Right. Pull, pull people out with tools. If you make a tool, they want to use them. Right. And he was saying that, I wish I had a quote in front of me, but that they should cut the hands off of many doctors because they reach for their tools way too often. Mm-hmm. Um, that to me, that was super progressive. This would these notes that I've read, I've seen them for a couple of different years, but it's roughly eighteen twenties. Well, it's interesting with both those characters because you're saying progressive. It's almost at the exact same time, which is what I'm always interested with this podcast. Of course, there's horrific stuff throughout history. Pick anywhere in the world, there's horrific stuff. But there's all this wisdom. And that's also what I like about religions is there is some deep wisdoms in these teachings. So while it is progressive, it's also not. It's those two guys are saying, hey, the people who lived here before, they know about all this stuff. Right. And uh, yeah, women know how to give birth to babies. They've, it's been since time immemorial. So it's kind of fascinating. It's really conservative it's not, in some respects. Right, yeah, yeah. It's like the trusting that humans have already known how to do these things. Um, Those are words that are abused. Yeah, of I, course. I should just of use, course. pick a different terminology. Of course, anyway. yeah, I know. Um, um, we, we should talk about the artifact that you bumped there because you don't okay. know what that is. I Okay, should I guess? Just, just describe it. Okay, it is some. it looks exactly like a cannonball, but like five times the size. So like a basketball size. Bigger than a basketball. Bigger than a basketball. I think I know what this is. Can I guess? Sure. Okay, wait, I'm going to keep going. So it's bigger than a basketball. It's got little particles that look like sawdust particles. It looks kind of like a planet. It looks like a planet. I'm going to guess that this, and maybe I just ESP'd it from you. This is a a mammoth dung. No. (laughs) (laughs) What is that? That's our hairball. That is the what? immense hairball. The hairball. Which okay. I thought you heard about the hairball. Well, I read it. I started reading it, but then I, I purposely don't want to know too much. Okay. And I knew that was a very brief interview. I knew we would, I'd end up hearing about the hairball and that, well, well, that, this actually answers the question about folk medicine because this is kind of folk medicine. It's, it's historic medicine at least. Yeah. So 
This is a is to my knowledge the largest one term for these is bezoars. It's the largest one in the world. Um, this when I got here, I was told that this came from a buffalo, but I actually found um, a, a catalog from the 1870s, and it this is one of two hairballs that Transy had. This came from a cow that was slaughtered in Maysville, Kentucky. Which, if you wanted to get out of Lexington, the closest place to get on the river was Maysville, and it was a, at least a day's ride on horseback, and maybe three, sometimes three or more. Um, I don't know. I don't know what happened. A, a farmer slaughtered a cow. It would have been a very sickly cow, and I found this giant hairball inside it. Um, somehow that hairball made us go ahead. Where would that be located? Oh, sorry. Uh, it's nowhere. It's the middle of nowhere. No, where where would this hair? Where oh, in sorry. the body? I thought you were asking in the cow's that body. The, well, cows have four stomachs, and you can actually fill one of them completely with with hair and not kill it. It would definitely make it sick, but it would not kill it. Um, and it's perfectly that's the it's rounded because it's been floating around in the cow's stomach. And when it got this big, it was probably filling one of the cow's stomachs. But this, so you mentioned folk medicine. This was actually used to treat poisoning, and it's been done that way since the uh, since uh, Egyptian times. I'm going to back up a little bit though. So I was telling you somehow this made its way into the hands of a, one of our students. He was named George Rogers Clark Todd. And Todd is a very famous name here in Lexington because of Mary Todd, who married Abraham Lincoln. So Abraham Lincoln's youngest brother-in-law gave this hairball to Transylvania. I don't know how he got it, but he gave it to us. So that, I always say, it's the biggest hairball in the world and the most politically connected hairball in the world. And Lincoln himself actually believed, maybe because he was desperate, but he believed in using hairballs because one of his sons got bit by a rabid dog, at least a dog they thought was rabid. And he took his son across state lines to find somebody that had a what they called a mad stone, which is a hairball that has kind of a, a calcium deposit on it, to treat this. They, they used to believe if you soaked your wound on a hairball that it would keep you from getting rabies, that it would somehow soak the poison, whatever it is, in the dog bite that would make you sick. They also used it if you swallowed poison poison and I think it was kind of like today if you if you think you're poisoned and you go to the hospital they're going to give you activated charcoal it will soak up some of that and slow its release into your bloodstream and I think eating a big gaba hairball will do the same thing that's that's my best guess on how this thing would work now how about for snakes um I've never heard of it being used for that but I wouldn't be surprised and can you describe what you would do with this? You would just like literally just like hold it on the wound? So for the dog bites, that's what I've read. You just, you, you would treat it as the wound by holding it against it. But I know that people also ingested them. I've also heard that, and, but I haven't been back to find it. In Harry Potter, there's a, a spell or something like that that's named after Bezoars to treat poisoning. The different guests that have come through here have mentioned Harry Potter when they see that. So I can't even tell you how much I like this because recently on the podcast, I've been, I'll try to make this brief, but I was trying to explore a whole bunch of topics. My Belgian side of my family, um, there's a hunting saint called Saint Hubert. Um, he was associated with, he's the patron saint of hunting, of hounds and of um, metalwork. And so how those three connect is, so he was a historical figure in the 700s 
and he supposedly cured a man who got bit by rabies. And then through the medieval period, and even up until early 1900s, people in that region, so the Ardennes, Belgium, France, maybe some Switzerland, Germany, in that area, they would have something called a St. Hubert's Key, and it's just a piece of metal. But some, the one version of it, one like in a museum, looks like a nail within a horseshoe flat top. And you would heat the metal in a fire, and you would press it into the, into the wound um, wherever the, the animal bite was. And supposedly um, that cauterizing, if you did it like super quickly, would kill the rabies wow. bacteria and actually work. And, um, and um, yeah, supposedly like rabies in medieval times was like absolute, people were absolutely terrified of it. And so I just, I mean, that's totally an example, like with the, with the hairball, just I, the folk medicine thing. Like, I just think that's so, so yeah. incredibly cool. Rabies is a terrifying thing even now. Um, if, if you get it and it's not treated, you're going to die and you're going to die. You're going to go crazy before you die. I think someone recently it's, got it from a little, but they didn't even know, but a bat landed on them. They didn't even know they had a wound or something. And then mm -hmm. a year later they died. I'd say it would be quicker than a year. I, I think it's just a, a matter of a week or so. I don't remember the details um, on that one. Yeah, it's terrifying. Um, let's get, let's try some other things that I'm absolutely fascinated for kind of like getting towards the end of this thing. This has been awesome. Um, I love paranormal stuff. You being by yourself in this room of all these odd oddities, skeletons, deformed body parts, do you ever get any weird vibes in, in here? I certainly get freaked out. Uh, the, the most freaked out I've ever been was when I discovered the medical Venus. I know that we had, um, they called it an entire museum of wax. We had a wax anatomic, anatomical museum. And you haven't seen, you've only seen one of these upstairs, but we, we have a few remnants over here, including something called a medical Venus, which is a dissectable model. And today you can buy dissectable models made out of plastic from science warehouses and so on. But this is one that was made out of wax, just like in a wax museum. Very extremely realistic. This was made in Florence, Italy. Um, there's a, still a museum there called La Specola. And wax is just crazy because it's translucent. So you can have layers um, that make somebody look really look alive and make the organs look real, like you're going to see them in a surgery or something like that, as opposed to if you have a, a plastic or a plaster model or something like that that's painted. It's a very flat surface where you can't see through. These were made by the same artists who generally made traditional sculptures. So they were used to making statues of beautiful women or men or whatever. They were made from casts of real people. Um, the curator at the museum in, in Florence has notebooks going back to the 1750s, and she looked at how many bodies came in. They had a lot of bodies in Florence, by the way. How many bodies came in versus how many models they made. And she said up to 200 women per each one of these models. 
Now, they didn't use every bit of these cadavers for this. They probably, in the amount of time that they could make a mold of one heart, the rest of the body had, had decayed. But everyone is different. And I think they would take the best heart that they could find and take the best spleen they could find and so on and mold them. And then they would have to adjust them so that they could fit them together inside this body cavity. Um, and you really can't tell it from this, but also I mentioned these were made by mostly by sculptors who typically just made classical sculptures. When they're complete, they were beautiful. They, and they were lying on silk pillows in a glass coffin. It was, it was kind of eroticized in a way. Um, I, I still have a hard time believing that it would take that many bodies, but I was speaking to the expert who had the notebooks in front of her. And, and that's what she said. And she's written as published that that's how many bodies on average would be go into each one of these. So there's a lot of life and death built into this artifact, and it is so realistic. Um, and she's also pregnant. There's a little, you can't see it from here, but there's a little tiny fetus developing inside her. Well, first of all, I had visited Europe and had seen some of these. I, I hadn't seen the ones in Florence yet, in Italy. But, um, and, and I also had a catalog of ours that said that we had one that was in terrible shape, and I had never seen it anywhere. And I just assumed that somebody had thrown it away, and I was so frustrated because there's such rare things and such amazing things. And one day I was in the basement, the same place where I found the leg um, in the box of keyboards, and I looked up on a rusty metal shelf, and I saw the silhouette of her hip. So you can imagine looking up at that. And I, I just got really excited. I thought, that's got to be the medical Venus. It's, you know, when you see a woman's hip in a place like that, what else could it be? And there was, this sounds like, I always feel like it's a bad movie when I describe this, but there was a wooden crate. I pushed the wooden crate over so I could stand on it and see. And I stood up and I came face to face with this one-eyed flayed woman. And it was just terrifying. I mean, it, it looks so realistic. I don't know how it looks to you from where we're sitting. But anatomically, is very precise. And, and anyway, my heart was just pounding. And I got over it. I didn't wet myself, but it was as close as I've ever come as an adult to peeing myself. It was just, just so, I, I was alone then too. Um, so I got my work-study student to come down the next day and help me carry her out. And it is, even though there are weird metal things sticking out, armatures and stuff like that, I felt this incredibly strange reverence, the same, I think, as if I were carrying an actual human body. Um, I was kind of overcome with an emotion moving this because it's like, really looks like a dead body um, and very emotional in part because I'm carrying something very fragile and I'm worried, am I going to drop this and break it? This is 200 years old. It's it's survived a fire. Are you going to be the one to screw it up now? Um, a lot of ours is missing because it melted or burned during the fire. And most of the wax models that we had were totally destroyed. But we have a few um, that have survived in some form or another. Most of them are damaged. Some of them are melted. Um, and then I know some of the organs from the medical venous were just basically just melted into one big blob.
feel like this, like I was sensing any spirits, if that's what you're asking, or anything like that. I am a physicist. I believe a lot of the most of the universe can be explained through physical terms, but I also know quantum mechanics opens the doorway for a lot of unusual things. And who's to say? Um, I don't. I'm not easily swayed by the idea of of a spiritual world where there are creatures roaming the earth that can interact with us. Um, that doesn't mean I don't ever believe that. I just, I, I don't certainly don't have any concrete evidence of that. I have had some experiences of my own just in general where very strange things happen or just you get a sense that somebody else is here, just like you get a sense of deja vu sometimes. Um, can I hear one of those experiences? Um, probably the strongest one was just waking up and, and being kind of having a sense that my grandfather was in the room with me. Um, for no reason at all. It's not like, I felt like he was communicating with me. It's not like I was hearing anything. I just had the, the sense of that. And I eventually fell back asleep and woke up and thought, hey, you know, I, so I don't, like I said, I don't, I generally think in physical terms, not that I, I'm, a, I'm not against spiritual terms. Um, but I haven't seen much interaction with, <laughs> I know there are people who do, have experiences that they the, the only way they can describe them is is that they're in, interacting with something on a different plane, um, and that's their experience, and I'm not going to argue with it. Um, I just don't tend to have that kind of experience myself. No, it's definitely very haunting about the Venus, and it's like I was thinking, my it's like a, faci- a facsimile facsimile of two hundred women. Yeah, that's very haunting, and. Um, what popped in my head, and his, we might be, I might be off with my historical dates here, but I do know that a lot of these scientists and doctors were really experimenting with like the paranormal and the occult. Oh yeah, in the definitely in in Victorian, so yeah. end of eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. Um, you know, the whole spiritualist movement where you would do like seances and try to see ghosts and evoke ghosts and evoke um, ectoplasm, which was like a described as like sheets, like curtains that like that of, of fluid foam that would come out of the person running the seance. Um, is there anything here from this school where that you saw any of that kind of that where science was trying to get at some of these, I don't know if they're deeper questions cause it's all deep at that time period, but, um, at some of these more occult or esoteric, did you, any signs of that? Um, I don't have many. I do know that Robert Hare was, he was the preeminent chemist um, in America at the time. And he eventually gave up practicing chemistry and went whole hog into spiritualism. Um, we have one of his instruments that he invented here at Transy. It's um exceptionally rare mm. piece of equipment that nobody cares about because if you know, if you go on the street and say, "I've got one of Hare's udiometers," nobody knows what a udiometer is, and blah blah blah. But um, 
but so I'm very familiar with how uh, at that time period, uh, you know, phrenology is is not the same thing, but it's the closest thing I can mm, think of mm. where there was a fad that was mm, science mm. and not science combined. Mm, mm. Seances aren't very scientific, but um, but there have all throughout history there have been people who and I come from a long line of of preachers in my family. Really? Yeah. Um, my my granddad on my mom's side was educated. He went to seminary. He also went to uh, he went to seminary at Louisville, not too far from here. He also went to University of Chicago and got a degree in chemistry, and then ended up PhD in chemistry. And he taught me from early childhood, and my mom too is a biologist. Um, my mom taught me evolution, and she taught me Sunday school. They they didn't mm. believe that science and religion had to conflict. Mm. I don't. Um, I don't. I think there's a lot going on. Yeah, there's definitely a lot going on. I think certain types of chemi- uh, certain types of science and certain types of mm-hmm. religion don't mix well mm-hmm. at all. And I think there are zealots on both sides who need to calm down. Do you consider um, yourself atheist? No, but agnostic. I, but very close to it. Yeah, agnostic. I'm a spiritual agnostic. <laughs> spiritual agnostic. Um, okay, so that's super interesting. Was your grandfather the one that you felt in the room, or maybe that was you had a different, that, different my other grandfather? grandfather. Okay. Yeah. Um, but here's we got to talk about this real quick. Obviously, you're super into like the macabre. I yeah. mean, I imagine yeah. if, if you go visit, the, if you make a trip from Kentucky to the Mutter Museum, and you're running this collection by yourself, that's not even really a museum. You're taking it upon yourself. You're obviously in the macabre, into the macabre. Uh, any, are you have any self reflection on on why that is? I mean, I very much am. I always joke. I might be dressed like a I don't know what, old timey a little bit, but I'm a closet goth for sure. So, is there any any particular reason or anything you that why you feel kind of compelled to, um, a little bit darker version of world of so, the world. I was I will say that I was raised by people who never threw anything away. So on both sides, I, I said I come from a long line of preachers, but also farmers and teachers, all people who don't make any money. I did have there have been a couple doctors in the past as well. So some bits of my family somewhere along the way made some money. But I grew up sleeping in a bed that was probably 140 years old. Mm. I I was just surrounded by old stuff. It was antique, but it was mostly, it was just old because people didn't make money and they hung on to stuff and they took care of it. So I've always been around old things and liked old things and appreciated old things. So when I got here and I saw old science equipment, what pulled me into this was the old physics stuff, like that vacuum pump there or the electrical machine or something. And then the anatomy came along second. Um, but it's also fascinating. And I remember... Um, the earliest memory I have of anything like that was going to visit my grandfather, who was a professor at a small college in Tennessee. He taught chemistry there. And um, when I was walking up to his lab, as four years old or so, I walked by a whole bunch of jars with dead babies in them. And I was not terrified, but I was really, really confused and curious. And I remember asking my mom, why do they have these and what happened to their mothers and isn't that that sad and all this stuff. That's how I remember it all these years later. I, but 
um, being around the physical culture of science for, at, at a very young age, and this these were old already at the time. When I was four years old, I was looking at stuff. You know, these were probably from the 1920s or something like that. It's just an unusual aesthetic. And I like brass and glass. I do metalworking when I can. I do. I love woodworking. I grew up around old things. I grew up around old people. <laughs> and you put it all together, and this it just makes it interesting. I think. I mean, I yeah. Me and, and me and my lady Vivian, she's an artist as well. We just love this aesthetic. Love Victorian aesthetic, which is a little bit later than this. Um, I mean, having so much of my family in Europe. Half is in Belgium, half is in England. I mean, I've visited the museum, the natural history museums in London are like just transcendingly beautiful. Yeah. Just all these just beautiful wallpapered rooms with the most stunning taxidermy. And so this is definitely my aesthetic. This is the dark, a little bit darker version, but you also have all the science equipment, science equipment. Um maybe really to we we could wrap this up. This has been a great conversation. I think maybe for to close it up. There were a few other little things we saw in the display case that I feel like we could finish off on. I don't want to forget about what you almost started talking about. I said, wait for the podcast. I took a picture of it because it was super weird looking. There's a statue of what, or a statuette, like a little figurine that's maybe a foot tall mm -hmm. of a, I guess, a, is it a man who has, or yeah, a, a so human who has, it looks like legs and arms of a person growing out of his stomach. Correct. Yeah, so... His name was Aki. As it, he was Chinese, um, discovered by the first medical missionaries to China, is what I understand. Um, and he was found probably in the 1820s and brought back to Europe. Um, I don't know much about that. I have two pages of big type of a, a biography about him. Um, and he had a parasitic twin, which is what that is. And so oh it, um, God. <laughs> it has de God. deformed arms and legs and a torso sticking out of his chest. This sort of thing still happens. It doesn't happen often, but it does still happen. If it happens in, in our world, the, they can do surgery in, in utero and remove them. Sometimes, not always. Um, there are some cultures where in some very rural and impoverished places where people are still born with similar parasitic twins today. Um, and they can happen all over. You can, there are people who have been born with two faces or part of a face on the back of the head. Um, I spoke to a woman this summer when she toured the museum. She was a surgeon from Canada, and she had actually done surgery to remove a parasitic twin from inside the skull of a small child. So this child was born with a giant um, inflated skull and inside it was a teratology which is basically a tumor like thing that had it had teeth and hair it was very deformed um the parents insisted that that they do certain things that ended up seriously damaging their child mm -hmm. so the child lived um after they removed it but was pretty um disabled oh that's chilling um but anyway it, Wait. The human body is is very. The now, amazing thing is that we exist at all. That you and I came out. Oh yeah, like we did. There's so many ways life can go wrong. Now, and, in many of those examples, is the second being alive? 
Was that so, Chinaman, whatever, the Asian man, was that thing growing? Was that so it, sibling it moved, alive? It moved independently from him. And here's... Without a brain. Here's that, This is the weird thing. Back then, anatomists would love to get their hands on anybody who was unusual. So we talked about the, the giant that's at the Mutter Museum. Um, there's a story of a giant, I believe, from Ireland who paid somebody to bury him at sea because he was so terrified of being anatomized when he died. And wow. somebody, so he gave somebody money to bury him at sea and then he died and then the guy took him and sold him to the anatomist. So he made money coming and going mm. off of that. Um, there's stories, there's a, a little, very small woman who was considered a child but was actually much older from Italy who made it to the... Um, her, part of her is in the Hunterian Museum now, but she she was a, a very curious spectacle to the scientific community then. And when she died, they immediately started to, um, to dissect her, and her parents were rushing from Italy to London to save her, and they got here and actually, I've heard, walked in on the dissection, and so it's got to oh. be a terrible thing. But it, it's strange to me that Aki was not, as, as far as I know, nobody anatomized, nobody dissected him when he died. There, I'm only aware of two of those statues or sculptures. We have one and the other one is in the Hunterian Museum in London. Mm. And you would think somebody that unusual in that community at that time, they would have dissected him and found out, is there something like a brain attached to that? You know, the, the, It looks like a neck going into his, his chest What's on the other side of that? What's making it move independently? But you can't. I even, don't know. It's hard to even comprehend what is going on. It's yeah. like, are there two consciousnesses coming in? Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, I like the idea of reincarnation and stuff like that through like different ancient, you know, the different, so many ancient cultures I've been reading, like Greek mythology, they believed in the underworld. You could drink from the river. I think it's Leith, L-E-T-H-E, um, to make your past life to wash away the memories of it. And then there was like a story of um, preparing to be reincarnated. And then I know that the ancient Celts, they believed in a, a form of reincarnation where um, when you die, you go to the next world. And when you die in the next world, you come back here. So I, I kind of find reincarnation kind of fascinating, but it's like, if that were real, like if we are in soul, a soul somewhere, and then we get dropped in here, it's like, what happens when that happens? Like two of them get crossed. Like what is going on when... Like what is going on? Yeah. Well, like, even with twins, yeah, with identical twins, if yeah, you believe in souls, on? then you, that's the question for somebody to, to ponder. Fascinating. Um, personally, I think consciousness is an emergent property of regular matter. Um, mm. That doesn't make it to me less miraculous. Mm. Um, and also, you have to believe in a type of reincarnation because we're made of stuff that was generated by stars that mm -hmm. blew up long before the sun existed. And we're, life tends, I believe, tends to create more life and mm -hmm. arise in ways that the atoms that make up you and me have been part of other people. That's not the same as our souls being part of other people, but you know, we are physically, you've probably heard that every breath you take has there's a really good chance that you're breathing in molecules of air that Jesus or Hitler or whoever else in past history has breathed. <laughs> I like and, that. I've and never we're, heard that. we take them in. When you breathe in stuff, those some of the those atoms get 
into our blood and move around and become part of us. So, um, truly epic. We are all connected to everything, you know, ashes to ashes, all the cliches right. there were, it's all one thing. I mean, I think we could wrap it up. This has been awesome. Did we forget anything? Uh, we didn't talk about the tobacco smoke enema, but we can do that next time. <laughs> I mean, I think we should probably end on the tobacco smoke enema. Oh, really? Okay. Well, we can do that. Let's do it. <clears throat> so around 1750, um, the story goes, there was a woman fell into one of the canals in uh, Amsterdam, and her husband was a sailor, and he took his tobacco pipe and stuck it up her backside and blew into it and revived her. <laughs> oh. And so that started a trend. Um, before this time, they used to, if somebody drowned, they would often put them on a barrel and roll them around and try to get water out of their lungs. Mm. But they learned that you don't have much water in your lungs when you drown. Your, your body just clamps up and you don't inhale it, um, usually. And here was this new way to revive people, and they started building actual kits for the purpose of blowing tobacco smoke into people's bowels and then basically inflating them. And um, that was in the 1850s. Better be a long pipe. Uh, yeah, so, it, well, it depends. The first one was just a regular tobacco pipe, although I don't know what a tobacco pipe looked like for the Dutch sailors back then. They might have been fairly long. But... um the very first humane societies were not about helping dogs and cats. They were about helping people, specifically drowning victims. And so they started raising money to distribute these devices all along the canals of the Netherlands, and then it spread throughout Europe. And they would publish books on how to use them, and they had contests, and the most heroic deaths every, or most heroic resurrections, reanimations were rewarded with handsome sum, sums of money. And we, in our library, we have a fold-out chart that's probably two by three feet or something like that, where you were meant to record the names of all the people that you saved with this device that we have. Um, to my knowledge, our device was never used to save anybody. The pipe in it is brass, and it doesn't look like anything's ever been lit inside that. And it actually came with bellows, like fireplace bellows. That, that you, so they, you were really inflating somebody. You were going <laughs> to town on them. Um, those are gone, and I think they're missing because they're one of the few useful things in the kit. So I think our chemist, Robert Peter, probably used those when he was doing chemistry labs because before Bunsen burners and stuff, you just build a really hot fire, just like the alchemist or whatever, and to do your, um, your different lab experiences and experiments and so on. Um, I'm going to say this in the cleanest way possible. In high school, we had a, a character who was really the most... Uh, one of our friends was really the major prankster, would just do the craziest stuff. And to make like 15, me, my girlfriend at the time, and like 15 guys laugh hysterically, he took a bike, bike pump, stuck it in his butt, and pumped it. And he was so <laughs> gaseous out of both ends, just constantly farting and burping, just non And it's like, so this is a similar, a, a similar uh, pumping of air. Right, right. Yeah, here's a question. Only it was tobacco smoke. Is, Mostly. Is there anything scientific? Is there anything that makes sense about this? Is there any part of this that is that is actually real to revive? Yeah. So I, personally, I think there is. I've I tell this to anybody who comes through that sees the museum. I had one 
an, an EMT tell me it's not going to do anything. Um, but I, I disagree with him. But he said ultimately he conceded it might be like slapping somebody. But mm. I, I think it's it's probably akin to smelling salts. If, you, if you're a boxer and you get knocked out and they crack those under your nose, it brings you back around. And if you have drowned but not been dead long and all of a sudden – there's this blast of nicotine to your system. And nicotine is a powerful drug. That's mm -hmm. why people get addicted to it. It, it does strange things to your heart. Um, I think it probably could, if there's any life left in you, the act of just blasting you full of nicotine, especially that way, mm. might might be able to bring you around, might cause your heart to spasm or something. And like start a huge amount of adrenaline or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, the thinking at the time had nothing to do with that. The thinking was, they, they knew there, there wasn't water in your lungs, but everybody was cold and they were trying to heat you up fast. And what's the quickest way we can heat somebody internally is to blow heat into their bowels. Their ass. That was, yeah. But why didn't they go down the throat? They thought it was too too longer that direction? I, I guess so. I don't. I mean, I guess I, technically. I haven't interviewed anybody yeah. about that. But you, you have to get, you know. Yeah, that is much I, longer, I guess, to yeah. get into the core of your body. Wow. Well, what a great way to end. This has been awesome. This is just so cool. Um, I mean, medical oddities are pretty, it's a pretty wild topic. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Is there anything you want to say in departing about the school or or the future of this museum, if it will be open to the public or if people, so, anything uh, like that? It hasn't been, uh, th we have had a few times when it was open generally to the public. Like an um, open house? Open houses, yeah. Um, and there were times when, uh, before I got here, so this is from other people telling me this, that it was basically in a room that was left unlocked and people could just wander in and look mm -hmm. if they wanted. But stuff walked away when that happened. Um, so I have a letter from the 1940s saying that we were very close to having a real museum and, and here we are 80 years later. And we don't, but we might someday. This is... It's going to be uh, incredible when very, it happens. Um, yeah. And, and, and like I was saying... For someone who's never been to this town, this is my first time, there's so many beautiful old houses that are kind of like in the Victorian style. It'd be so cool to put this all in one of those. Yeah, it'd be cool to put it all together anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, I, uh, It all comes down to money. Mm. So someday we might have a wealthy donor who loves the museum and decides that's what they want to do with their money. Um, until then... I'm just grateful that the college lets me use the space that they do. Mm. They could be teaching classes in here. They could be doing there, – there's a lot of reasons why we shouldn't have this. Actually, the Smithsonian tried to buy this from us at one point. Really? And they we said no, and I'm grateful for that. Although we've had people – we've had administrations in the interim who probably wish that we had sold it and mm. had the money instead. But um, I can say I have almost never had a tour – where people didn't love something about what they saw. It is oh, an amazing yeah. collection, and it covers so many different areas. So plants, photography, electricity, an anatomy. Yeah, we barely um, got into anything. We just, we just yeah. got into like the wild medical, the weirdest the death thing. stuff. Yeah. We didn't get into any of the botanical stuff, really. Yeah, or we didn't get into any of the old, uh, the old machinery. Right. But, so yeah, um, if any of your listeners want to see this, they can contact me, and I. I can't guarantee him. What I hate 
is when I have to say no to somebody who just drives up and asks to see the museum and I'm walking into class. Like, yes. No, I can't do that. Email in advance. But yeah, if you check in advance, I try with just about anybody, um, especially somebody who has, like, you don't have a medical history no. personally, but you have um, a lot of familiarity with it. You know a lot about Audubon. We, we had before we even started recording this, we both learned a lot of stuff about things that we're both yeah, interested we in over in the library. library. So um, I will work with people um, so definitely if they're people, patient enough. And definitely and, people who are uh, in academically interested or yeah, anything I mean, like that. Yeah, I mean, researchers, yeah. If yeah. there's somebody doing who's studying the history of hairballs or whatever, I'll do everything I can to get them in. Awesome. I prioritize them. But if it's just curious people, I, curiosity is is one human trait that I want to amplify. Yes, I, wonder, I'm, wonderment. I. There's something in this table I'll show you when we're done that will that impresses everybody. I have one time in my 20 years doing this, I've shown it to somebody who was not impressed and I yelled at him. It was a class actually. <laughs> and I, I, I was like, what? You guys have been staring at phones so long you've forgotten how to be impressed with, mm -hmm. with nature. But um, yeah, I love, I love when artists come, mm -hmm. visual artists like yourself are stunned by the things we have that's uh, these are objects that you just don't see on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Even if you hunt for it, um, it it changes you in a, in a good way, mm -hmm. I think. And our world needs more curiosity and more openness to ideas. And I think you Amen. can get that from here. <laughs>